Solutions, Emmanuel. Solutions, Sean. My name is Sean. I'll be one of your hosts today. I am a communication student here in Kansas. And I am Emmanuel, and I will also be one of the hosts today. And I am a university student, and I am a major in political science and philosophy. Today, we will be discussing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or more, more known colloquially as the Mormon Church. And we are joined today by, I guess, a childhood friend of mine. We went to middle school and high school together, and we also participated on some sports teams together. Um, and this guy was also not always a member of the church, but this is Austin. Yeah, hello. My name's Austin. Uh, I've been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for about 15 months now. I'm currently studying at BYU-Idaho, or Brigham Young University in Idaho, uh, in computer engineering. Sweet. So, Austin, can you help uh, us explain, or I guess understand, the basic foundational beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Absolutely. And uh, I just want to say before we go on that anything that I say uh, is not, unless I quote something and make sure that it's in context, is not something that the, is not a church statement. I am just a member. I'm not representing the church. I am not paid by the church. These are my opinions and my beliefs, as in most religions should be. But um, going into it, um, so first thing about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as in the name, we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we are pretty similar to Christianity, the more, pe more people think. The only difference is, is that we also believe that the Lord... Jesus Christ had visited more people than just people in Jerusalem. So what do you mean by more people? Like where where are you talking about? Is there a specific uh, geographical location that you mean or just simply everywhere, that, everywhere or everywhere? Well, um, for one group that we do know, it was in the Americas, um, the, the people of that are called the Nephites, that their history was played out in the Book of Mormon. Um, we know we have record of Jesus Christ visiting them, but he also mentioned other sheep and other folds that we currently don't have any records of, but the ones that we mostly look upon are the Nephites that were in the Americas. So are there any um, other texts? Because I know explicitly in the Bible it doesn't reference uh, Nephi or the Lamanites or anyone else besides um, Middle Eastern populations. So are there any other texts that say what? Like religious texts, such as, um, like, I believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints also believes in, and they use the Book of Mormon, right? Correct. So we use um, what we consider scripture to be the Bible, New and Old Testament, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. What exactly is uh, the Pearl of Great Price? So the Pearl of Great Price... Um, there's some, um, this is kind of jumping forward past a little bit after the church reorganization where the members, um, ran into some guy that had these papyrus scrolls, these Egyptian scrolls from an Egyptian burial site. And the members kind of, um, at that time thought that, um, as saw Joseph Smith, I mean, as a, a seer and regulator, I'm sorry, a seer. And that meaning that he can understand different languages if the Lord will will him to to understand. And this is how he translated the Book of Mormon. But um, these members went to Joseph Smith and said, um, can you translate this? And Joseph Smith said yes. So the church gathered money and bought these scrolls. And these Egyptian scrolls that we believe that we call the Pearl Great Price is the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses. And these um, we believe to be the original books, um, not the ones in the Old Testament that have been changed over time. Okay, gotcha. So we will be talking about that later, at least going into more detail later, but I guess a brief overview is, um, I guess, necessary for understanding the church a little bit more. Right. right. Yeah. So the church also believes in, um, I believe they call it the plan of salvation, right? Could you Absolutely. give us a rundown on what that is, like a brief one? Yeah, so the plan of salvation is just our destiny through life. We believe that we started off as spirits in a pre-mortal realm, that we had intelligence and we had agency. And in this, we made a decision that we wanted to come down to earth. And this is where we're at right now in the plan of salvation is we're in the, we're in, in the earth state. After this, after we die, we go to um, 
a section where spirits dwell at, and we will reside there until the second coming of Christ. And then we will live with Christ on earth for a millennium. And then after that, we will be sent up and judged and based on the judgment placed where we, um, where God desires us or believes that we should be at. And uh, how would we get to these uh, different places? I, I assume that there are different, I guess, kinds of afterlife. Like there's a telestri- telestial, uh, celestial kingdom and things like that. Could you explain that a little bit? Right, yeah. So there's a couple different categories. The first one, when we die right now, if, if we were to die right now, we'd be sent up either to spirit paradise and spirit prison. And we're not given any, um, we're given a little bit of detail of which one we would go to and as if we would believe or not believe. And so not saying spirit prison is a bad place. It's just a place where people that don't actually understand uh, the gospel or haven't received the gospel or have rejected the gospel go and people that have accepted the gospel um, spirit paradise. Um, and then after the second coming of Christ, we're sent up to judge and there's four um, sections, you could say. I mean, technically there's more, but we'll just stick with the four. There's outer darkness, telestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and these kingdoms, a lot of people will say, now oh, the basic, um, I'm not going to say basic, but the if you go onto the church website, it'll kind of give you a little summary of like celestial kingdom is those people that have performed the next necessary um, or have taken out the necessary covenants and done the correct ordinances and have been a, a, a faithful member, they will be in the celestial kingdom. And then terrestrial kingdom, this is where people that haven't been able to receive the gospel or believe in Christ or whatever will will be there. And then people that are just the, the worst people that, I mean, Technically, they didn't. They sinned, but their sins weren't any unforgivable sins. So they're in the celestial kingdom, and then outer darkness is reserved for um, the people that uh, committed a sin that was unforgivable, such as denying the Holy Ghost. Um, and then, technically, I guess I should say one more. Um, in the scriptures, it talks about a lake of fire, and we believe only um, the children of perdition go there. The children that denied the savior and the pre-mortal realm go there okay so i i think that's a pretty sufficient overview of the church it's kind of impossible to go deeply into everything in this particular episode absolutely Um, but we do want to get to some topics some things that are of controversy within the church um and that this is coming from members who are both outside and within the church these these views are not solely anti uh church of jesus christ of latter saints or pro yeah Absolutely. And so I guess the beginning is this is where Emmanuel really comes in. He really likes the ancient history parts of stuff, but mm-hmm. the origin of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Saints. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, before I start, I just want to read a quote from the one of the former presidents of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Saints, uh, J. Mm-hmm. Reuben Clark, and he says, "If we have the truth, it cannot be harmed by investigation. If we have not the truth, it ought to be harmed." And I think this is very important that we understand this not and we are not trying to attack this solely because we don't like the church or solely because well we just have fun attacking things this is a truth claim that is being brought to us and that is being uh, promulgated throughout the world so we want to really investigate it and see how true the claim really is and so the first thing that I want to look at is the origins of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and specifically the first vision account. Uh, could you tell us uh, what the first vision account is and things? Yeah. That <clears throat> so the first vision um, starts off with Joseph Smith, the first prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, or we shorthand use the Restored Church. So the first prophet and president of the Restored Church. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, a very young kid. He was 14 years old. Um, at the time, there was a uh, volcano that went off an, an island. I'm, I'm, the name is slipping me, but around America. And um, the sulfur and the dust that the volcano left um, darkened the sky. And it started having these environmental effects on the world. 
And so at this time, we can see a spike in religious beliefs and a re- um, church attendance in all denominations of Christianity or most religions because people wanted some way of explaining this. In this, Joseph Smith wanted to find, he, he kind of was following the flock and trying to find where he belonged. He went to church um, with either one of his parents. They both went to different, um, different dominations of Protestant churches. And he was really trying to find answers. Um, he wasn't happy with the answers he was receiving. Um, and so he kind of jumped around all over the place. And um, one night in his bedroom, he got on his knees and he prayed to Heavenly Father that he would be able to know the answers. And uh, what he's um, in his writings of what he saw, he saw a pillar of light and an angel come down and quote a couple scriptures in the, um, the Bible and then told him, that none of the churches are right, none of them have 100% of the truth, but he will soon know and soon find and help regather this truth. And so um, I believe it was a couple days later, it wasn't necessarily the day after, he goes to the Grove, and this is in New York, um, this is like rural New York. Over district, right? I, I believe that's right. Um, and he went to this Grove, we call it the Sacred Grove, and he got on his knees again, and he prayed. This time it was harder to pray. Um, he says the adversary was gripping his tongue, almost trying to hold him back from because the adversary knew that the truth was about to be revealed and that there'd be a lot of light brought into the world. And so with this, he prayed and another pillar of light came down. But this time, two personas came down, um, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And they told him that he is going to be a prophet and that he is going to lead the restored church. And so when I keep saying restored church, just to kind of uh, expound upon that real quick, we, we do not believe that this church just started 200 years ago. We believe that this is the church of Moses. This is the church of Peter. This, this, our church is just restored after a time of apostasy. So like a long continuation. Yes, yes. This is, um, we, we're not saying that this is a new church. This is newly restored. Gotcha. Um, so when was, when was this first account? of the first vision uh, given out to the public. So when did Joseph Smith tell people that he had this first vision or first vision of uh, God and Jesus? I'm going to be honest. I don't know exactly when, but I know that he really, um, there's recorded four different instances of the first vision given by Joseph Smith. And, um, the research that I've done, because this has been a question that I've had for myself, is four different instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming this is where you're leading on to is the four different accounts that he has. Correct, yes. Um, and so what we look at is that this is something that a lot of people use for the New Testament. We have four different Gospels, mm-hmm. and each one is slightly different from another. Right. No one is 100% true. And... When looking at it as a detective, a detective, if they have four different accounts, then they presume it's more true because the human mind is going to change how they perceive the past based off of who they're talking to and how long it's been since the account. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we get these four different accounts and... Almost, if you talk to someone that's a detective or someone that investigates the mind, you would they would tell you if it was the same exact instance every single time, there could be questions as to if it is a lie. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the account of the first vision, as you said, there are four of them. Yes. But the account that Joseph Smith was 14 years old when he went out into the wilderness, uh, that was the 1838 account. And this is the quote unquote official version of the first vision uh, that's one on the church's website, and that is used in everyday uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. But my problem with this is that a previous version, the one one that was written uh, six years earlier by Joseph Smith himself, says he was 15 years old when he first encountered God and Jesus. I'm not saying that this is a very big thing i'm not trying to blow it out of proportion but it does lead me to wonder if this is really if we can really trust these accounts because 
We're using a later account that says he was 14, but his own handwritten account said he was 15. And why the discrepancy? So the the problem is, is that you're, you're looking at, um, there's, there's a couple problems that can occur when you have a teenager that is having these very celestial events happen to him. And he's already in a home that is struggling financially. Mm-hmm. He is not well educated. He really didn't know how to write. He he was in the best circumstances. But the the I'm sorry. But uh, with all that together, you find that there's going to be some things that are off slightly. And so I believe that the church does have records of um, his parents writing accounts of when stuff was happening. There's been other records, and I think that this is when this has been updated from, uh, okay, it wasn't actually 15, it was 14. Mm-hmm. And and it, it does become a problem with early, the, ch- the church being reorganized early is because you have this confusion and this chaos that they're just going to have mistakes. And the the more we prick, like pick them apart, the more it, it just shows that like this wasn't planned. This this wasn't meant to be like oh I'm gonna well document everything that happens to me because I know I'm gonna become a prophet of um, the restored church, and so we get all these problems and it really it really does bog people down like you said like hey you have a problem with the the, the slight number change. Okay, so so another problem that I have aside from the one with the age of uh, Joseph Smith where he was uh, fifteen or fourteen was that in. If I'm not mistaken, in one account of the first vision, uh, this is, of course, the uh, 1838 account of the first vision. Joseph Smith said he saw God himself and Jesus. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, this is the account that we um, use when we're talking about the restoration in the first vision. Okay. My problem is, in another account, he did not state that he said who were that he saw God and Jesus together. He only stated that he saw God himself. Correct. There is. So why, why would we believe this one that says he saw God and Jesus rather than the one that says God himself? And granted that this is a pretty big discrepancy, not necessarily just like the ones with his age, but also what he saw in actuality. Like, why would he, change his ideas and his view from having God and Jesus to just God. I wouldn't say that it's a necessary change in views. It's just a perception of him not foregoing all information. Because there's also another count where he doesn't mention God or Christ at all. Yeah, correct. Um, He just mentions a voice. Right. And so I believe that now this is this is going into my own beliefs at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I have with the the research I did earlier, and it's been a while, but um, the research that I did when I was investigating, the conclusion I came to was, whenever something happens in my life and I have multiple people asking, I start cutting things out, and it's not because they're not important to the story. I'm just am tired of saying the same account over and over again. So he had newspapers asking him for his account. He had people asking him for his accounts. And so all of these different people asking for his accounts, while he was busy trying to follow what the Lord and Jesus Christ told him to do, I think would, would be really annoying. And there was a lot of people that were not believing him. There was a lot of people that said that he was just uh, a kid that was making things up. And so he's probably pretty annoyed at some people um, asking him about it. But... Even if you're annoyed, because personally, if I'm, I could agree with you, some things I would cut out if I'm asked over and over and over again about one situation that happened in my life that was some time ago. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with you that I would cut some things out. But the problem is he, this is cutting out and changing one of the most important aspects of this entire vision, who he saw. He says in one vision that he, he only heard a voice. In another vision, he said he saw God himself and not Jesus. In another one, he said he saw God and Jesus. Correct. If, I were, if I had seen, personally, God himself, 
and only God himself, I would not be saying I saw God and Jesus or I just heard a voice because that is, again, the most important part of this entire account. Arguably. Yeah. <clears throat> I will say that I have not um, personally read the accounts of the other three accounts fully. So I don't know what in context he was speaking when he was saying that he only saw God or when he just heard a voice. But what I have come to a conclusion of is that personally to me, it's not not necessarily a big deal for the miscommunication or the, the, the misinformation, but it doesn't change what it started. Okay. If it was just a voice that was speaking, if it was just God himself, or if it was God and Jesus – all of the accounts agree that Joseph Smith was going to be the first prophet and president of the restored church. Mm -hmm. And that to me is that to me is the part that is important. I think that seeing him does say a lot about him being a prophet, but how how heavenly father and Christ work is beyond any of us. And trying to just say that seeing different things or accounts of just what he saw is different and makes it a problem is something that I don't agree with. But the meat of him being told that, that he needs to start the restored church, he needs to reestablish it. That is what is important for the vision. And that's the true, you just said like meat. So like the core of what the vision meant, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so around that time period, I believe, uh, I think it was the angel Michael who instructed uh, Joseph and guided him towards the plates, right? I thought that was Moroni. Or was it that was, Moroni? Yeah, it was angel Moroni. Gotcha. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, it was over the course of four years where he was led there and was like, don't touch him. And then he went away. Next year, same thing happened, same thing happened. And then eventually he was allowed to retrieve the plates, right? Yes, it was um, because of... The first time he saw it, he started to become greedy when he saw gold and thought about selling it. And that once he touched the plates, um, it's a, an, a novel that the church church released called Saints. It says that it, it, he felt a shock and he pulled back and the angel Maroon, I told him that because of his heart, he wasn't able to take it. And I think he felt the same way again. The second time and the third time, he wanted to show it to someone when he was told, instructed to not show it to anyone. Mm. And then the fourth time, he was allowed when he hid it in a log. <laughs> hid it in a log? Yeah, a hollowed out um, log that was like almost just the bark was left. Okay. And it it, in the, the Saints um, novel that the church released, it's not more of a novel, it's more of a historical book. Yep. Um, it says that he hid it in this um, bark, hollow bark. Yeah. Okay. I did never heard of that, but that's. I mean, it's pretty interesting to find out. Right. Um, and it. Oh, go, go ahead. Go go. Um, and the, it continues to say on um, his travels after he got it, he had multiple people come up to him because it started to circulate what day um, of the year that Joseph Smith went, and people knew every time that he would go to the hill. And so people would follow him back and try to steal the plates. And so in this saint's book, it also talks about the struggles of him just getting back home. So even trying to do that one task, he was kind of harassed. Yeah. And his mom is, uh, as an account in our journal about how exhausted Joseph looked at once he got back. Um, can we move on to the translation of those plates? Oh, absolutely. Um, so as I said before, we believe that, um, Technically, we, we believe that every prophet and apostle of the church is a seer and revelator. Um, so we also believe that Joseph Smith was a seer and revelator. Mm -hmm. um, he used two seer stones. And with these stones, he put them in his hat. And when he looked down in his hat, um, he was able to see the, the English version of the plates. And he spoke it out loud to a scribe, which he had multiple scribes through the translation. I think he had two or three scribes. Wait, how old was he at the time? He was 18, I believe. This was four years, uh, about four years after um, he uh, got the first vision. Mm -hmm. And I just have this, uh, this quote that I'd like to read about the translation. Please. Um, and so this was 
trying to explain how difficult the um, the translation of the Book of Mormon would have been if he made it up. And so it kind of puts it as a school assignment. So it says, the Book of Mormon as a school assignment. Write a story with no source material on an ancient inhabitants of a continent of your choosing. No one can help. You must write it by hand. Must include 54 chapters dealing with war, proper weapon- weaponry, tactics included. Must include 21 historical chapters spanning a thousand year period of time. Must have 55 chapters that deal with visions, prophecies, and they all must agree with the Bible. Must have 71 chapters on doctrine and exhortation. Nothing must be contrary to the Bible. Must have 21 chapters on Christ's ministry. Must agree 100% with the New Testament. You must employ figures of speech, simile, principle, symbolism, character, metaphor, narration, description, epic, lyric, logical um, parables. And you must have, I'm sorry, and you have two months or around 60 days to finish. When you are finished, your story will be posted online for the world to see. The best scholars, critics, students, and teachers will see your work. Um, And you may not include any knowledge in your paper that you gained beyond your second grade education in school. This is, uh, that last statement is because Joseph Smith only got to second grade in education at that time and no further education. Was that normal for the time period to only get that far in education? Um, Usually it's a little bit later. But because of his family's finances, he got um, taken out of school early to help with the farm. Okay. Usually they made it to, I believe, fourth or fifth grade before it was optional to continue. Okay. Um, so he was around 18 when he was able to start this translation. And the stones were actually called like Umum and Thumum, I believe. Thumum right? and Urum. Okay, that's close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're close. And so I believe like when he would... Uh, use the stones the word the translated word would appear on the stone right i'm not sure about that but um that could be true i'm not sure i I haven't heard anything about exactly how the exact translation happened besides the stones and the hat okay so you're not exactly sure about the whole process okay right i just know that um it it was something that he didn't need the, technically, he didn't need the Book of Mormon in the room or um, uncovered. He, he could have been in the next room, and he was able to still translate the book. Okay, so I think this leads to another problem of mine. Okay. Not, not just to keep harping on the problems that I see with this, but... <laughs> um, so he didn't necessarily have to have the Book of Mormon in the room for him to translate that, correct? Correct, because we don't believe that this translation was a worldly translation. We believe that this is spiritual revelation. This is divine, um, and this is something that prophets of the old and the New Test or in the Old Testament have done um, with translations with uh, or with seer stones. Would you say it's something similar to how Muhammad received the Quran? I would definitely say that. There is a is a difference because of him having like that whole vision, yeah. But there's there's definitely um, some similarities, and I will say that we do believe that Joseph Smith wasn't the first one that um, the Christ tried to have restore the church. We believe um, now. I believe personally that Martin Luther was one man that was um, inspired but got off on the wrong track on restoring the church. And the same could be said um, about anyone that has had these spiritual encounters and have produced scripture that prophesies of love. Okay. Um, I forgot, but I should also mention, for those of you who don't know how Muhammad received the Quran, I believe he went to a cave and the whole Quran was imprinted on his heart, not physically, but um, spiritually. And so he was able to recite it from uh, from heart. And I, I don't want to say many, but it is definitely a skill that some Muslims learn, which I think is really cool and very difficult, especially if you've read the Quran. But it flows like poetry, which makes it a little bit easier to learn. Um, but, okay, I see what you mean. So there are similarities, but also key differences between uh, the translation and then the, the the inscription of Muhammad's. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so going on, am I am I correct in saying that the Book of Mormon itself was written in the language Reformed Egyptian? 
Yes. Um, Reformed Egyptian, believed of a mix of Hebrew and Egyptian, used commonly at that time by traders that went between um, Israel and Egypt. Okay. Do you know what that's based on? Or where, because we don't have, of course, the, the place themselves anymore. Do you know what that is based off of? In terms of like what the language is based off of? Yeah, or how we can say that this Reformed Egyptian was a mix between Egyptian and Hebrew. Um, in the, let me just pull it out. In the first, uh, the first chapter of the Book of Mormon, it cites that, Yea, I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews in the language of the Egyptians. Okay. And so um, prophets before have told us that this is a um, Reformed Egyptian um, very lots of symbols. Um, we can attest that it is very similar to um, Native Americans and their symbolism. And so, the first chapter are you referring to First Nephi? First Nephi, chapter one. Gotcha. Okay, so going back to the translation itself, um, you said that he put the Urim and Thummim in his hat, and then he read essentially. Uh, what or he translated the Book of Mormon that way? Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So I'm not saying that this is true. Of course, I'm just coming at this maybe as a a prosecuting attorney in a court. Mm-hmm. But couldn't that possibly be him just re just thinking of something, and then just having his scribe, whether it be Martin Harris or somebody else, write it down, and he can just think of things on the fly. That would be a possibility, but reading through the Book of Mormon, the story is a complex maze of flashbacks and different bridges of stories. The the language that is used changes from author to author. It is something that I don't believe one man could have done by himself. So you said in the... um in that school assignment reference that it took, it was two months, right? Two months. That is how long it took Joseph Smith to uh, translate the plates. So kind of uh, piggybacking off of what Emmanuel said, Joseph Smith had four years between the first vision and when he received the plates. So could he not have come up with some parts of this story within those four years and then once he received the plates, that marked the beginning of his actual writing of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, um, that could be very true. But the, the problem becomes is that Joseph Smith still wasn't really educated. Like he had the Holy Bible that he could have been studying from from the four years. But a necessary of having correct war tactics, of having amazing English with Simile using metaphors and symbolism and character character names. The amount of names in the Book of Mormon exceeds two hundred. It is is something that me looking at it, I know that I would never be able to achieve it when I like from starting at fourteen to the age I was. I don't feel like any one person is mature enough at fourteen to start contemplating or creating a malicious plan to create this fictitious story. Yeah, it would definitely be the hardest creative writing assignment (laughs) ever given to a 14-year-old. Yes, 500 pages is just something that is is way too far out of any grasp of a 14-year-old at that time. Okay, so this leads me to my first first source, which is the CES letter. Uh, For those who don't know what the CES letter is, it it was a letter by a man named Jeremy Runnels uh, written to the director of the CES. I don't exactly remember what that uh, stands for. Um, but S- Jeremy Runnels was going through a tough time where he was wondering, hey, is, this, is the church really true? And he, over the course of, I'm pretty sure, a year and a half, uh, he was questioning different things like the translation of the Book of Mormon and things of that nature, and also parts of about like polygamy. A lot of people uh, uh, use polygamy when they think of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, so Jeremy Runnels was very, very worrisome 
And he was very much questioning whether or not the Book of Mormon was true and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a whole was true. Um, so his grandfather actually offered to give a note that J Jeremy Ronalds himself would write to the director of the CES um, for, so he can respond to. And so he did that. And that was when the book, the CES letter was written. And it's just a book at this point, it's essentially a book <laughs> of just questions and uh, objections and, and wonderings of how the Book of Mormon actually came into effect. And it also gives um, con evidence that this book may have been, uh, you know, plagiarized from other things. Ideas may have been taken from other books and so forth and so on. So the first thing I will look at is there are sections of the Book of Mormon that look to have been completely ripped off of the 1769 version of the King James version of the Bible. And the King, the 1769 King James version of the Bible was the, just about the only translation of the, of the Bible that was around at that time when Joseph Smith was uh, to be translating the book of Mormon and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, one thing I want to read is from the CES letter, this is, I think, in the first chapter, this is the, I think, heading two. Um, this, there are two passages here. The first one is from Isaiah 9, 1, uh, the 19 or 1769 version of the King James version of the Bible. And then the second one is from 2 Nephi 19, 1. And it goes as such. Never, Isaiah 9, 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her exaction, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephat Nephtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Second Nephi 19.1 Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her exaction, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Nap Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her, afflict by the way of the Red Sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. So, as you can see with this reading, these readings are the exact same, except for one word. In the Isaiah 9-1, he uses the word her, and then in 2 Nephi 19-1, that word her changes to, uh, to the red, just the Red Sea. So aside from that, these two passages are the exact same. Sure. So I'm, and this is also the translation of, of you know, Hebrew to Greek and so forth and so on when people were translating the King James Version of the Bible. And this is supposed to be, you know, the exact translation from Reformed Egyptian into the Book of Mormon. So why are these two passages the same? If one is a translation of a translation of a translation, and the other one is a direct translation, God was supposed to be giving... Joseph Smith, the exact translation, exactly how it's supposed to be from Reformed Egyptian. Whereas that's not true for the, 19, the 1769 version of the King James Bible. Yeah, so uh, a couple things. Um, the first one is so that everyone knows the Nephites did have the Old Testament with them. And in this second Nephi, he is quoting it exactly. He's quoting Isaiah. He's trying to explain the passages and expound upon them. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we have to look at is um, the Old Testament that he is quoting from is after Babylon, after um, Israel just got back on their feet after being invaded. And so this, um, these, these plates that he had is also a little bit older. Um, they're going to be more exact than we have now. So... Um, the translations are going to be closer. I'm not saying they're going to be perfect, but they're going to be closer because of the distance of when they were written to what we have now are pretty similar since there's been some time frame. But so you're referring to distance of time, right? Yes. Not, ge not geographic. 
not geographically, from when Isaiah wrote it to when um, Nephi was quoting it to, to now. The time frame, any mistakes, any things that got altered would have happened pretty early as the Old Testament was being organized. And obviously some more changes happened. And so that's why people are questioning the, the, the because we also believe in the change happened even after um, the Americas. Mm-hmm. But I, w- I will first look. Um, let me look this up real quick. This was about 600 BC, mm-hmm. uh, as in the heading of the Book of Mormon. So it's it's still pretty close, but the biggest thing that I take away from it is that um, Heavenly Father uses things that are very similar to us to help us understand it. Mm-hmm. And so the thing, um, even some people have been questioning about um, the way he translated with the stones in the hat. That was a common um, thing in the past, like um, at that time for people that were trying to tell your future. They'd put right. stones in a hat and they'd say that, oh, this is what I saw. Mm-hmm. And this is um, Joseph Smith had done this as a kid. He he tried to tell people their future by doing the same thing. And Heavenly Father is going to use something that's familiar when you with you if he wants it to be exact. So not only did he use something that Joseph Smith has already done with the stones in the hat to translate the Book of Mormon, but he uses the King James version when quoting Isaiah because this is something. Once this book was released, this is going to have to convert people that have no idea about the Book of Mormon, have like and the church is chaotic, unorganized, many problems are gonna go through it. And so to for me, he it's not I I will say the Book of Mormon we cannot say is an exact translation because of the revelation it was. Um it wasn't Joseph Smith comparing uh, the Egyptian symbols to what English was, it was him receiving revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something that looked familiar was going to be what's best for him so that he can get it correct. And this kind of shows in the scriptures the, that we have three additional books that we like to use. And each one um, is seen as something that you should necessarily not read until you read the one before. So the Book of Mormon and then Doctrine and Covenants and then Pearl Great Price. And the reason is because it gets less and less familiar. And the the doctrines that are taught there become exhorted even more. They get even more deep. And it's really hard to understand if you're not familiar with the beginning. It's like trying so this to... Re- Go oh, ahead. sorry. Um, does this refer to the concept of milk before the meat? Yes. This is like trying to... Like, like it's trying to teach calculus to someone that doesn't know algebra yet. Okay. It's, I just wanted... Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, I guess, like... It seemed like an easy, easy example, um, but I don't want to get into that yet. Right, right. But yeah, that that is what I, my belief and how I I view um, the exact replications of the King James Bible in there. And there was also one other issue um, that the guy that printed the Book of Mormon first edited the paper, the Book of Mormon. He changed a lot of things, and Joseph Smith had to go back and change it. Um, and so some things could have been missed, slipped, and the guy could have changed it to be exact. That is something I don't know, but my personal opinion is that um, that he could have altered the Book of Mormon in a way that was just slipped, and Heavenly Father was like, it's okay. It's just a small, a small change is not going to affect anyone's belief extremely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So does that additionally go and apply to the there so for context in again the 1769 version of the king james bible there are words that are italicized and they are italicized because these are words that the people at those times in the 1769 version whoever was uh translating the bible from the previous language they had they didn't have the words that would maybe flow as well as the direct translation of the Holy Bible. So they decided to put their own words in place of those to have it flow, quote unquote, better. Better, yep. And so, again, touching on that uh, Isaiah 9-1, the words shall be and was, uh, those are italicized words. 
Yeah. And they're also in the first sentence of, in the first part of that sentence. But those exact same words shall be and was and later by, those are again italicized words and they are also in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So why would, why would, I'll, I'll use your, your words, Heavenly Father. Why would Heavenly Father have Joseph Smith use incorrect words to translate the Book of Mormon that, uh, however long ago, were used in the Holy Bible? Heavenly Father doesn't like to waste time. He likes to, in my personal opinion, he likes to, he, he's always on the perfect path to, to our salvation. He is always trying um, everything he can to bring us back. And if something is going to get the same idea across, but slightly different words, then why change it? But these are incorrect words. The, you could have used better words to convey better information using a very direct translation, as I guess would have been done with the translation of the Book of Mormon from Reformed Egyptian to English, rather than a translation to a translation to a translation into the 1769 King James Version of the Bible. Right. And this is, this is when we start um, nitpicking um, exact scriptures. But the, the problem becomes is that saying shall be added in or different words used is not going to s- stop the person from feeling the spirit in which we believe mm-hmm. and convince them of the, the plan of salvation. And Isaiah himself was a person. Joseph Smith was a person. Every prophet in the Book of Mormon in the Bible was a, was a person, and they make mistakes. And they interpret what the Spirit is trying to tell them, and they write it down. Mm-hmm. And so if their interpretation is, is not necessarily what Heavenly Father wants, then he'll, and someone makes a change because it flows better, at that time, then he's going to let it be. But when we read the Book of Mormon, we also do realize that it was translated in English, in 1800 English. And so we also look at that, and we really just try to understand the ideas that come from it. We're not necessarily just reading it for leisure and for the story or for it to flow better. We are really, we're reading it to feel the Spirit and to gain a better understanding of what Heavenly Father wants of us. Mm -hmm. And the biggest this thing that when people tell us to read scriptures, they tell us to read with a question. And if you read with a question, then the Spirit will give you the answer in certain verses. And the verses could be saying something completely different, but the Spirit testifies of an answer that is nowhere near what the scripture says, or it just says one word in the scripture, and it, it gives you this answer. So we don't really get too caught up in the words, mm-hmm. because... The words are just words, but the spirit is something tangible, something that is actually affecting us. If we tie all of this together, uh, having the having Isaiah not transcribe the word the words of God exactly, potentially, and also the spirit telling you something that's not necessarily in the Book of Mormon. First of all, with the former part. If Isaiah were not to have translated or put down the words of God exactly, wouldn't that part possibly call into question the inerrancy of the Bible? And because we have the same passages from Isaiah in 2 Nephi, also the validity and inerrancy of 2 Nephi. No, um, I don't think that does question anything at all. And um, the the reason is is really because um, God's given His seal of approval on it, and I think that's mainly the big thing. Is that even though the translation was different or words were added, Heavenly Father gave His seal of approval on the words that were in the Book of Mormon after it's been after the changes for when those people started messing up the editing, but. Heavenly Father gave his seal of approval on his word, and so I'm not someone to say that it's incorrect if Heavenly Father has said that the Book of Mormon is true. 
And for me, the Spirit has testified of the truth of the Book of Mormon. So I'm not going to question the feelings that I've felt and what Heavenly Father says is His Word and what isn't. I can't decide that. It's Him Himself. And if the Spirit is testifying to me that it is true, then that is that is how I know it is true. So are you saying that uh, God's seal of approval is letting the that translation go? Like not demanding or... Uh, I guess asking Joseph to change that. I I don't really want to say that because that is also saying that oh Heavenly Father has given a seal of approval, but the Spirit has testified to me of the truth of the Book of Mormon. So for my beliefs, I do believe, and as the Church would believe, that um, Heavenly Father puts like his seal of approval that that is his word and this is correct, as long as it is interpreted correctly and written and or read in the right state of mind and with the right heart. So received correctly as well. Yeah, because there's always going to be a mixed message coming whenever you read anything. Mm-hmm. So that leads into my the latter point that I brought up about the spirit telling you that this is how things are and that this is the truth. Mm-hmm. Is it is it possible for someone to to think something on their own, but actually and accidentally? say that that was the spirit doing that for them, giving them that revelation. A hundred percent. That it has happened. It's happened in my life that I've thought that I've um, received some truth or that I have had some truth, but it has not been. Mm-hmm. And so, go ahead. Oh, you, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish what you said. Um, I just think that it is, it is a struggle that most people, um, Christians have is deciphering what is the spirit and what is just our mind. Um, but we, I always question it and like outside of the moment, but when the spirit testifies of you as something that it is, it is unbearably true. It is, it is something so burned in your heart that it, it has to be true. And so it's almost like training yourself to feel the spirit, but also letting that spirit come in is kind of the hard thing. Okay. So, I guess I will kind of reiterate. So can you can you think that some, something is true and that you think the spirit is saying that that thing is true, but it really made you think the spirit is telling you that is true, but it's actually not. Yes. So how can you be so sure that what you are have what you are getting from the spirit is actually what is true. Well, um, a couple things. The f- the first one is that the improvement that it has had in my life, the happier I am. Um, and so for me, that is a testament in itself. The blessings that I've had in my life, that I am I am following a path, and even if it is not a hundred percent true, I know I'm going down a path that I enjoy and that is something that I want. But the second part of that is that you just got to have faith. And that is that is the hardest thing about religion in general is faith and the trust of the unknown. But again, that leads into another question of is faith a reliable pathway to truth? It is if you see, if you are improving your love to everyone, if you are, if you are improving yourself, if, if it is leading you down a path, of spiritual and mental success then it is and we also believe that heavenly father uses different religions or different aspects of life to bring people closer to him so he doesn't just leave them out to dry if they're not just members you can feel the spirit and not be a member you can feel a spirit in any congregation it it can be anywhere as long as there is love and that there is there's hope in that congregation so Emmanuel and I actually, um, we took uh, lessons with missionaries over the summer together. And one of them was this, like, one of the questions that we asked was this particular question. And we also asked, um, because we had heard that it is, if the feeling that you get and the action that, or what you're seeing or whatever you're experiencing that caused that feeling um, align with the church, then therefore that is of the spirit and then that is something good uh the missionaries also said that if you can they said that you can feel that uh that same sensation and have it be 
uh, connected to something that does not align with the church. And then that is Satan, right? So how, so would you say that the only reason or the only way to discern between one or the other is simply through uh, your faith and what you believe the church to be? I, um, I will say that um, missionaries of the church are representatives of the church. And so they use that the church teachings as their foothold. But after mission, a lot of them realize that you have to have more than just that. And so I, I slightly disagree with that. That is the church's opinion. The church's statement has been if it aligns with the church and if you feel the spirit, then it is of the spirit. And if it doesn't align with the church, it is Satan. Um, but I, I have a slightly different opinion. I, I believe that it, it really has to come from your heart. It is, it is not something like there have been church teachings that have been reverted or things that have been different and changed over time um, through Heavenly Father's will. But people could have believed that those changes would happen before it happened, and they would have still been following the Spirit. I don't think that it was Satan telling them that this is true and that this is going to happen. And so even though it's different from the the official statements of the church, you can definitely have the spirit leading you. The adversary, the best way to to see it is that the adversary is going to lead you down a pain a, a path of pain and agony, which is going to seem great in the moment, but over a long term, it's going to lead you down worse than you were. And so it's not more of looking at it at a short term, it's looking at a long term of how it's affected your life. And so my next question is, because you said faith is a reliable pathway to truth. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. So can, can someone have faith in an idea and that idea not be true? Yeah. Um, but that type of faith can be different. That could be very temporal faith. Okay. So and what's the, the difference between the two? Then? Yeah. The, the temporal faith is believing in something like I can have faith that I can go and start a business and make a billion dollars, but that necessarily isn't rooted in truth. When we, when I talk about faith, I talk about seeking Heavenly Father in everything that you do and, and seeking the Spirit in everything you do. And so if you have faith in an idea, but you are acting faithful, you are doing everything that you need to be doing to seek out Heavenly Father, then you will have that idea reverted to what is true. It is faithful actions that lead you down the right path is what I should necessarily say, not just faith itself. Okay. So I guess I should have asked this question first, but what, what would your definition of faith be? Believing in the things that are unknown. Okay. So would you, uh, would you align yourself with the, he, the Hebrews 11, one version in the Holy Bible, the belief in things uh, unseen, but have no evidence. Essentially? Yes, correct. And um, I do have um, another scripture that I'd like to, quote please um yeah let me find it real quick i'm sorry so we're just going to read from this is moroni 7 in the book of mormon we're reading verses uh 41 to 43 and what is it that ye shall hope for behold i say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal and this because of your faith in him according to the promise Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope. For without faith, there cannot be any hope. And again, behold, I say unto you that he cannot have faith and hope save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. And so the biggest thing that that's talking about is that you have to have faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. But you can't just have just faith. You need to have hope, charity, love, and and meekness and lowly of heart. You need to be humble. There's a list of things that have to happen to have perfect faith, which we'll never achieve, but we can strive for. And following just a portion of this will lead you down a path of success and of eternal life. So further, I will ask or I will add that, you know, as someone who is a Muslim, they would they also follow the idea that faith is the belief in things not seen and so forth and so on. 
just mm-hmm. as you say that that faith is that as well. But you said that this the faith in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the Book of Mormon, that's the correct God. And you come to that conclusion via faith. Am I correct in saying that? Um, yeah, it's it's more of faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection is okay. more of what the the heading of that is. Okay. So and then with someone who's a Muslim, they believe through faith that Allah is the one true God and that uh and that the Prophet Muhammad he was the spokesperson for God and that everything that is written in the Quran is correct and they come to that by faith. Mm-hmm. The same faith that you are assigning your belief yourself. Slightly different, though. So, yeah, slightly different. But it's still the belief in things not seen, but you still believe anyway, essentially. So how would, how would, by using this standard of what faith is, this definition of what faith is, that both of you, the Muslim and you, are subscribing to, how can you say that the Muslim is wrong and you're right? But additionally, how can the, the Muslims say that they're right and you're wrong? If you're both using the definition of faith, that you both say that faith is indeed a reliable pathway to truth. Correct. Um, I will say, though, that the important part of those scriptures I did read was the part of Jesus Christ. And so for Muslims, um, Jesus Christ was just kind of um, a cool guy and and really shorthand but it's really important that with your faith that you have faith in jesus christ and his resurrection and unto eternal life and so for muslims they don't believe that they do have faith in being holy of heart they have they're very peaceful people but without that without christ you lose everything in the gospel that faith is no longer rooted and in the spirit because of the loss of jesus christ now they could they are definitely amazing people they definitely are peaceful and the great thing is that in the afterlife they will be taught the the gospel of jesus christ and they will have a chance to to become a disciple of christ so i guess i guess maybe i shouldn't have used muslims as an example let's say for the heck of it let's say scientologists okay Scientologists have faith that ze- that their souls are immortal and they came from aliens that dropped their souls here on Earth and Zenu is the one true God. And they have faith, the exact same faith, again, the belief in things not seen and also they don't have evidence for their beliefs. So how can you say that they're wrong when they're using the exact standard of faith that you are? Granted, they don't believe in Jesus Christ, but in their idea of, of what things are in their faith is that there is no need for Jesus Christ. There is no Jesus Christ. See, the, the, so that's not really a contention with them. So, again, my question is, how can you say that they're wrong when they're using the exact same standard as you are? And how can they say that they're right and you're wrong? Well, they definitely... Um, Every, every person has some root of truth in him. And so um, I wouldn't necessarily say wrong. It's more of who has more truth. And that's, that's really the big thing. And I'm not going to say that Scientologists are wrong. Uh, and I'm never going to tell them that. I'm just going to say that I believe in something different. But, I and, mean, in a, in a, in a, according to... Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the this church is the one true church, and therefore Scientologist is not the one true church because there right. there are two things that are mutually exclusive. So how can they? How can you not say that they're wrong? Well, when it, when it comes down to it, the 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 actual official statement from the church is that everyone does have some seed of truth, but the problem is, is that they don't have all of it. So they can't have faith in everything until they have the full truth. And the one truth that they're, they're definitely missing 
and so the, most Scientologists do believe in Christianity or they have some root in, in Christianity. So they believe in Christ or even Catholicism believes in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Um, but they don't believe in the whole plan of salvation. That, um, because they don't need it. But they believe they don't need it, but they do need to have faith in the plan of salvation. And so if we're looking at any of the, the old prophets of Moses or Enoch, they technically had less knowledge than all of us because they had less scriptures. They, they had, um, we have a really wide field of truth that they don't have. Whereas they had a lot of knowledge in the plan of salvation. And that is what their faith was rooted in. And that is um, why they were led down the path of being able to be prophets and and be able to speak of truth is because of the belief in the plan of salvation. And without the plan of salvation, um, you have nothing. Okay. Without but, it. Go ahead. So, again, but Scientologists don't believe that anything that has to, or the majority, as you say, of Scientologists don't believe that any part of Christianity is right in any way, shape, or form. They do not believe that Jesus is the one true God or is the Son of God. They do not think that there is any salvation in the belief of Jesus Christ or anything of that nature. They just have faith, the belief in things unseen, to and, base their beliefs upon. And I think you're getting caught up on that one definition of faith, which is a very broad definition but the definition that i would definitely go by is is the faith in the plan of salvation and the faith in jesus christ and his resurrection and eternal life if i wouldn't say that my definition would just be the belief of things unseen because like you said before they can have faith in anything but right. it is not it is not gospelly true it is not eternally true until you have faith in jesus christ and the plan of salvation so would you say that they don't have faith they're like real faith. Though. I would say they wouldn't have um, eternal faith or faith seen as benefiting them progressing to eternal life. Because it doesn't align with how the plan of salvation in uh, your church's eyes would go, right? Not necessarily in the church's eyes and what Heavenly Father in Christ have said. It is, it is leave out the church. It is the plan of salvation. That is the important part, not the church's views on the plan of salvation. Um, according to your church's God, that is how it must go. And so that is what is ultimately considered faith, is having faith in life eternal and through um, achieving that through the plan of salvation. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Hey, sorry for the abrupt episode ending. This is the first of three parts regarding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, we'll try to release everything by the end of January, and please like, comment, subscribe. We appreciate your feedback. We appreciate what you do for us. You guys mean a lot. Thank you. You have a good one.